Hello there, this is John Coleshaw, and I'm just slightly borrowing the voice of John Pertwee for a moment. I don't know, maybe a regeneration might happen. Yes, it happened there. Yes. And you're listening to The Sirens of Audio. Wonderful chaps. Both of them. Before we start this edition of The Sirens of Audio, Philip, I believe you've got something you want to say. Well, people will hopefully already know this. For those of you living in Australia, you may know that the Sirens of Audio is bringing Janet Fielding to three cities. So she's coming to Sydney first on the 1st of April. Then she's going for the first time ever to Hobart. And she's yes. pretty excited. Yes. I wonder why she's going to Hobart. Why is she coming to Hobart? No idea. No. It just takes the Sirens of Audio to bring Janet out so that she goes to Hobart. And she's appearing also in her home city of Brisbane as well. So there's tickets on sale for that now. Go along to the Sirens of Audio website, just on the sirensofaudio.com, or you can even look up janetfielding.sirensofaudio.com. Both places will take you, give you more information if you're in Australia or want to come out to Australia. Why not, why not come out to Hobart for holiday and meet Janet? So please get your tickets, and we look forward to seeing you in either Sydney, Hobart, or Brisbane. I, I was just swimming laps in the pool yesterday and finishing it off. So I just had a loudspeaker and... Well, you're- Oh, you're a loudspeaker. I, I think a loudspeaker. I by thought, the pool. how on earth are you doing that? No, I just, I just, I just put a portable speaker down by the side of the pool. And what like, did the neighbours think? Of it? I don't care what the neighbours think. <laughs> I do. They, That's they, the spirit. They, they're used to me. I do it all the time. <laughs> G'day audiophiles, this is the Sirens of Audio, the show that explores the universe of Doctor Who in the audio medium. I'm Dwayne. And I'm Philip. G'day Dwayne, g'day audiophiles. G'day Philip, good to see you. <laughs> That's it's been a such a, a long time. Bit of a pause there. Yeah, I was muted, I was clearing my throat. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay then. It happens, the wonders of technology. Uh, today on the show, it's going to be a good one because we're going to be talking with uh, one of our fellow Antipodeans, Kate Orman, who has recently released an audio book, or she's written an audio book that's been released through Big Finish, called The Dead Star. So that should be good, Philip. It should. Can I just say, I saw when I was looking through Kate's profile, the word Antipodean, and I had to Google it to, to see what it meant, because <laughs> I didn't know what Antipodean meant. So do you know, for all our poor listeners out there, to save them having to Google, like I had to early today, what does Antipodean mean, Dwayne? It just means Australian. Yeah, Australian. Actually, I think it's Australian or New Zealand. New Zealand. It includes New Zealand. It is both of them, yes. So, yes, I think, I know we have had other Australians on the show, but it's an all-Australian all Australian show today, mates. Very good. So, before we get to talk to, with Kate about the uh, incredible novel that she's just written and uh, has been released, there is one thing to do, Philip. And what's that, Dwayne? We're going to jump down the rabbit hole. Let's go. <laughs> Okay, Philip, we're here, but 
but I have no idea what we're going to talk about because today is one of those days where you're going to hit me with a rabbit hole topic. Oh, Go for it. Oh, I hate it when you do that. You get <laughs> you get time to think and plan. But I, I, there was something I wanted to talk to you about, and so we'll make that the rabbit hole topic. Um, the new cover for Kate Orman's book looks sensational. Now, one of the things that Big Finish has done throughout the time is in terms of covers. I was wondering what sort of covers do you like of Big Finish? So what, what, what to you are the favourites in terms of style look? Well, do you know what? The covers have kind of come full circle recently because when Nick Briggs took over from Gary Russell, those full covers uh, with just just a logo but like a full cover image was sort of done away with and you got this little strip down the side, little sidebar, which was very synonymous with the Nick Briggs era, shall we say. And while that was all very good, I was never a huge fan of that, particularly on the downloads, because that's all you got. If you actually bought the physical CD, there was all there could have been another image inside. Sometimes there was. Um, they did different things with the inside of the covers too. And that's one thing that I like about the Briggs era covers is that um, that all colour, whereas the earlier ones are all black and white because they're just starting out, so the the budget's probably not there. So they were black and white on the inside, which, uh, but the outer covers I think are, uh, are, were more striking to me. So I missed those. Uh, but now that little sidebar has been done away with over the last little while, uh, and we've got a couple of different artists that do things with the covers that are very shall we say, synonymous with their work. So you can tell, you can almost tell, just like we can hear in sound design, who's doing the sound design because they've got certain things that they always do. It's the same with the covers. When you look at the covers, if you look at them long enough, like we do, and often enough, you get to see that the covers are specific to the certain artists that uh, that you can certainly tell who they are. Now, logos, I'm, I'm not really fussed on logos themselves. I think every logo has a place. I know there were a lot of people don't like the the full Doctor Who logo that was across the covers over the last few years. I I don't know, I like the two line Doctor Who logo. But um the 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 single line Doctor Who logo didn't really bother me either. I I, I still think they were good too. But the new diamond logo I'm really loving this. This is really doing it for me. I've never been fussed before with logos, but this one actually excites me now. I don't know how you feel about that. I, I mean, I love the logo. I, I, I'm wondering, do you think they'll keep it for, for Suti, Shooty, or do you think it's just for the three David Tennant specials and the Diamond Anniversary, and there'll be a new logo for the new Doctor? Have you thought about that? It wouldn't surprise me if there was a brand new logo for yeah. Shooty, and this was just an interim one just for this year. For the anniversary and made sense, but it, it it looks amazing on the covers. Um, yeah, as I said, I mean, it's so this the cover that's been done, the Dead Star, which we're talking about with Kate Orman soon. Uh, the cover that's been done by Claudia, uh, how I pronounce her name, Claudia Gironi. Um, and it's a really, it's like an artist's impression. So at the moment, big finish tend to be either photographic matchups, so as photoshopping different characters and and pictures in, into into their pictures, or there's this new arty style, like a, like a pastel. It's almost like a painting. It is like a painting, and I really think they look beautiful. Like, it's mm. just a stunning piece of art. Um, it, it, a lot of those early covers that Clayton Hickman was doing, they, they actually used to make models for some of the creatures. So I think the 
Benny Summerfield one set in the hotel during the convention with Sylvester McCoy. Fear Monger? No. With, with Lisa Bauman as well. It's oh, a Shadow of the Scourge. Shadow of the Scourge. So the Scourge on the front cover is actually a practical model made by the special effects guy who's good friends with Sophie Eldred. They did a book together. I'm, aren't I just giving clues away? Is it Mike Tucker? Mike Tucker. There you go. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> we should play. What's that game called where, we, where someone Charades. gets clues? No, gets word clues and the other person's together. Anyway, you're doing really well. So yeah, Mike Tucker used Thank to you. make physical models of a lot of the creatures and other people did as well. So a lot of early covers actually had clay figures and models made to make to match into the covers. So yeah, there's always been a lot of work done on the covers and yeah, really appreciating what's being done. Um, some of them are just beautiful. Um, yeah, I just thought it'd be good, good to talk about and we'll keep seeing what happens next. The only issue with download only is that you, your covers aren't as big as they as you would like. Even the CD cover Sometimes to me, being a being a classic rock fan, and I like the twelve inch covers, but it's too expensive for me to to buy twelve inch stuff for a big finish and get it transported to Australia. Postage is in, absolutely insane; it costs about three times as much as the product. However, uh, we were looking at I think I think it comes up in the interview, doesn't it? We were actually looking at a review of the Dark Star, and they've got such a high res quality image; it takes up the whole screen, and the detail in there is absolutely superb. So, interestingly, these audio novels are only being released as downloads, so you can't even get a, a physical copy. So, a uh, bit of a shame. Very important. I'll, you can I understand, will, if it's seven hours, that's going to be three or four. Oh, how many discs would that be? Five or six. Six, six discs. Six. That's going to be so expensive to produce. People, people wouldn't pay for six discs. It'd be too expensive to make a cover for and everything. That's, yeah. You're getting, you're getting the length of the story. You won't pay for the physical. I agree with the logic behind what you say. I'm just speaking purely from an aesthetic point of view. The heart. That's right. So I think, yeah, I think the, the larger covers look much better than just down on your phone. However, that said, I do look at covers constantly while I'm listening to an audio just to sort of let that soak in and it helps me visualize the story. Yeah, I know, you know, early on, great joy, getting the CD in the mail, spending half an hour trying to get the plastic cover off it because I could never get my fingers into this plastic wrapper, trying to get into the CD, cutting myself with scissors, trying not to scratch the cover, but finally getting in and thinking, wow, and then you know, reading through the booklet meticulously, yeah, that's all lost now with downloads, but it's cheaper. Absolutely. Shall we, shall we climb out? I think so. Let's climb out of the rabbit hole. I'll throw in... Uh, an excerpt from The Dead Star, and then we'll be back with author Kate Orman. From Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, the audio novels, The Dead Star. Polly and the Doctor walk through the deserted campus, past the brushed concrete buildings, heading for the tube station. The balmy summer evening was spiced with the smell of freshly mown lawns. Doctor, said Polly, if I ask Dr. Fields to tell me what a black hole is, she'll never stop telling me. So would you mind explaining it, preferably in words of one syllable? The doctor said, well, I'll try. You see, a black hole can be created when a very large star reaches the end of its lifespan and goes supernova. Now, a star is tremendously massive. Earth's sun weighs about an octillion tons. 
when a star's furnace goes out, there's nothing left to hold the star up against its own enormous weight. He mimed a ball with his hands, bringing them suddenly together. The dead star collapses in on itself, crushing all of its matter into a tiny space. His right hand became a tight fist. The closer you get to it, the more intensely you feel its gravity, until it's so powerful that nothing can escape its pull, not even light. That's why it's black, said Polly, a little bit awed. Out of the corner of her eye she saw a large dog crossing one of the lawns. When she turned her head it was gone. She said, So it sort of sucks everything in? Well, <clears throat> no, they're not vacuum cleaners, said the doctor, pleased with his joke. They don't suck and they don't gulp. From a distance the black hole's gravity is perfectly safe, just as if it was an ordinary star. But if you go back into the black hole... You can never come out again. Was that the dog again, passing behind them? Polly tried to concentrate. It's funny orbit. It has something to do with the time corridor, doesn't it? He nodded. The time corridor is straight as a die. Dr. Fields thinks her planet X is following an elongated elliptical orbit, like a comet. She doesn't have enough data yet to see the straight line. They were passing by the grandiose optics building. But, Doctor, does that mean... Between two columns, she caught a glimpse of that dog again. No, it wasn't a dog. An instant later, the thing skittered round the column, a thick body with multiple legs, staring at them menacingly with two black eyes. No, four. Eight? The shriek came out of Polly as though someone had pushed her down a flight of stairs. Now the monster was a hound bigger than she was, made of hundreds of small, metallic parts all jumbled together, moving and changing in front of her eyes. Oh dear, it's a robot! exclaimed the doctor. All at once it was tumbling towards them. This collection of pieces of red rods and gold chains and jagged silver shapes galloping across the grass so lightly it left no trace. But there was a parked car in its way, and it leapt onto it, crumpling the roof like foil. Oh, my star! shouted the doctor. Polly was frozen in place. The moment he grabbed her arm, she turned to run with him, even though the robot man-dog was racing down the road only a few seconds behind them. Only one second behind. It was on them! Big finish for the love of stories. Many people would know Kate Orman. She's a very well-respected author. In fact, she was a bit of a unique person because she was the first woman to write for the Verge New Adventures and the first Australian, I think still the only Australian. Kate Orman, welcome to the Sirens of Audio. Hello. Hi. Hi, everybody. Great having you here. How have you been? Shocking. Um... I had uh, I finally COVID finally caught me after years of my managing to dodge it, and so um, at the end of November last year I got the dreaded COVID and was flat for about a month, um, but uh, the antivirals helped. Oh boy! Um, so I was very lucky to be able to get those, but I'm still sort of like picking up the pieces even now. Um, two months since the diagnosis. There's so many projects that I was in the middle of and there's, you know, there are all those things in life that you're trying to do, you're trying to keep track of and uh, it just blows you out of the water. 
and then you're running around for the next month trying to pull everything back together again. So I feel like I'm, st- I'm still in the middle of that process of just trying to find where everything was at the end of November. But I can't be that uh, badly off because I am working on an original novel, which one day will make my fortune, win me the Hugo, of course. Uh, we we live in hope and a few other projects beside. So um, that's how I am. And how are you guys? We're great, thank you. <laughs> So anyhow, we just just recently you've just had released um, a new audio novel by Big Finish, The Dead Star, and that's what we want to talk to you about soon. But before we get to that, can we just have a bit more of an understanding of your career? Um, how did you become a writer? I started with fan fiction. I must have mucked about a bit in high school with, with creative writing because I remember enjoying doing that. And um, I think the thing that I remember in particular was we had to write a story about a bushfire. And I went, this must have been year eight, year nine. I went a bit crazy with the bushfire story. And we were only supposed to write a page. And I was writing about six pages with all these exciting descriptions. And I thought, this is great. I could do this for a job. Um, So it was the first sort of sign. But it was really horrible as well because it was a bushfire. So I was doing all these horrendous things. And if you've read my Doctor Who books, you know that's what I love to do. Uh, is uh, torment people endlessly. And I think in the bushfire story, I was only tormenting sheep endlessly, but uh, it was like the first uh, the first indication. But uh, when I became a Doctor Who fan and I discovered, the, I kind of already knew there was such a thing as fan fiction because I'd read some Star Trek fan fiction when I was quite young. Uh, and so I started to write my own Doctor Who fanfic. And, you know, the ideas would just sort of come to me and I'd be scribbling away on the computer. And uh, then I discovered fanzines and you know fandom as it was in in the 1980s uh which was wonderful everybody needed stuff to put in their little photocopied fanzines that they were sending out through the post and i loved going down to the post box because i was subscribed to about i don't know two dozen fanzines that can't be the right number can't have been that many but it, it was that there was a real feeling at the time that there was just this huge creative output um, from all over Australia, uh, people were just doing loads of zines. Everybody was had a personal fanzine. I had a personal fanzine. The clubs were doing fanzines. And so I was writing loads and loads of, of um, fan fiction. And I had this ambition I was going to try and get uh, fan fiction into every fanzine in Australia. I don't think I quite accomplished that. But for me, that was like a, a, a kind of a kindling. It's, it was like um, putting the training wheels on. It really got me working uh, to just write and write and write. And um, that was brilliant because, I mean, I don't know how many, how few people would eventually have actually read any of that stuff. I mean, these fanzines didn't have enormous audiences, but everybody was very enthusiastic. The people reading them were interested, the people making them were interested, and I was interested. And so it got me kind of into this habit of constantly producing stories all the time. And there's no better practice for a writer. There's nothing you can do that will... Um, uh, that will help you to learn how to write, to improve your writing better than actually sitting there doing it. I mean, there's lots of things that will help. Reading a lot will help. For example, um, getting feedback from people will help for a lot. But um, at the end of the day, you've just got to sit there pounding on the keys. And so I had this reason to do that. And it was really, 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 really great. And then suddenly out of the blue, um, I think this was Dallas Jones, who at the time was the head of the um, Australasian Doctor Who fan club handed me a photocopy from Doctor Who Bulletin. And that photocopy was the call for submissions to Virgin's New Adventures. 
Now, I know somebody out there will, if I've got any of the details of the story wrong due to extreme old age, somebody will write in and correct it or they'll put it in the YouTube comments or whatever they do. Whatever the kids do these days. But I'm pretty sure I have the story straight. So anyway, so Dallas hands me this photocopy from Doctor Who Bolton saying, please send in your Doctor Who novel proposals. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, my time has come. This is what I've been preparing for. I strongly suspect that most people write fan fiction just because it's a blast. It's a lot of fun. You can share it with your mates. These days you'd share it online. You're not necessarily trying to become, you know, a professional author. You're just having a good time. But I was I, I was ready to, to, you know, I had a little book called Writing for Pleasure and Profit. And um, I've forgotten the author's name, but uh, it was great because it explained how writing a book and trying to get it published actually worked and about rejection slips and the whole process, how it would work. So I kind of knew what I was up against, but I also was extremely determined. I thought, you know, this is the opportunity of a lifetime and it's just a very natural step for me to go from scribbling little things that, that I can then inflict on various fanzines. And then from there, I can go to writing much bigger things because we had to write three chapters. And I can't remember how long three chapters was, 15,000 words, probably less. It wasn't an enormous amount of prose, plus a, an outline. And that was, I mean, that was also a wonderful thing about the new adventures was that you didn't have to write the entire book first. That is not normal in publishing. Normally they want to see the whole book, but these guys were looking for new authors. They wanted to get, give writers a start. And so they were basically saying, show us, you know, the, the prose that you can produce, show us the plot that you can produce. And so you could do this fairly minimal package and send that off. And, um, uh, I was I was going to send them hundreds of those. I was I was ready to do it, and then the second, I think the first one got quite a nice rejection slip. So that was a great sign. I knew from writing for pleasure and profit that a friendly rejection slip was a good sign. And then the second one, they said, what exactly did they say about the second one? They were very nice about it. They were suspiciously nice about it. And um, I thought, hang on a minute, I'm getting somewhere here. And then, of course, the third one was the left-handed hummingbird, and that's what, the one that they actually said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to publish you. And I'm, I'm sitting there going, I know from writing for pleasure and profit that this never happens in publishing, that this is impossible. I've been impossibly lucky. And that's, that's where I started. So your writing came through all your fan fiction work. So just go back and back again to and repeat the story now. Mm -hmm. How was it you became a Doctor Who fan? How did you get into Doctor Who? Well, I mean, I'm that uh, that age of Australian that it was just a natural part of the landscape, along with you know fish and chips or whatever, or whatever. Well, what were we doing in the seventies? Eating um, Zupa Dupas and running around in the grass. This is gibberish, edit it out. Um, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to kind of place myself mentally back in the 70s. It was just a normal part of life in the 70s. It was the television everybody watched. Um, it was in that odd transitional place between children's television and the afternoon. Uh, so you'd come home and watch cartoons and then you'd have the goodies, then you'd have Doctor Who, then you'd have the news. Um, so it was in in between the, the children's and the adult television. And so essentially the whole family would absorb some of it. I mean, uh, me and my brothers were like, you know, we were addicted. We would always watch it if it was on. My parents would often also be watching it or they'd catch part of it because they wanted to watch the news. And I think this was the pattern in an awful lot of households. It was just very ordinary. Um, you know, this is the sort of thing that people could talk over 
the water cooler about, if you know what I mean. So how did you move into fandom from there? Fandom, qua fandom is a different kettle of fish. Um, it was the um, Australasian Doctor Who fan club parties in Sydney, they were called. They were um, fan meetings where uh, this was um, run by Dallas Jones with many capable assistants. They would get episodes over from Britain and sometimes these were um, things that had been um, copied from the archives and then handed down about 400 generations. And so you could just about peer through the static and watch the war games. Um, or um, I can't remember the ex incredible excitement of watching about 10 minutes of time in the Rani at one of those meetings. And the, the new title sequence with the computer graphics are just jumping around with excitement. Uh, heady days. I remember the Crusade Crusade Part 3 and just thinking this is the best oh. television ever. God, when she is that the one where she shouts, that infidel? Yes, Joanna, yep. We must have ended that meeting together. I, I think, think we I'm were. Sure I that. <laughs> yep. that was, those were magic. They, they really, it was a slightly primitive sort of um, uh, get togethers, but they were wonderful. You know, with Sydney University's terrible uh, electronic equipment, but it didn't matter. It was magic, and um, you know, as soon as I discovered there was such a thing, I was completely hooked. I must have um, discovered that fanzines existed, that fanfic, Doctor Who fanfiction was being written in Australia at those meetings. Um, there was there would always be little table selling things, and um, uh, yeah, I could. <laughs> I remember thinking. As a very young woman, I mustn't get a job on a Sunday because I might miss one of the Doctor Who meetings. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so I might have been a little bit addicted to that. Fantastic days. Now, you mentioned watching Time and the Rani, and yeah. I remember that period very well too. It was shown on uh, a program called The Afternoon Show on the ABC, and that is where oh, I no. first saw you uh, on television. Tell us about that day where you ended up on a Doctor Who quiz on the afternoon show. To my eternal embarrassment, um, that was so much fun uh, with James Valentine hosting. And we all, they said, they must have spoken to the Australasian Doctor Who fan club and said, can you get a few fans who are, you know, who, who can appear on television? Come on in. And so we sat there. We didn't have buzzers. Do you remember this? We had squeaker toys and that was our buzzers. And um, we were asked a series of questions. The funniest thing happened, though, a bunch of us were in sort of the green room for people who were going to be on the afternoon show. And for some reason, they were piping whatever. They, they, they must have been running through the photographs they were going to use in the quiz on some console somewhere. But they were piping that output into the green room. So we got to see the all the photos that they were going to ask us about later. And I said, who's that guy? And somebody said, oh, that's Sydney Newman. I went, oh, you mean the guy who created the show? And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then we were sitting there, you know, and I'm just wearing this insane blue hat. I have no excuse. With my squeaker toy. And they said, who's this photograph of? And I said, oh, James, in my very best RP voice, that's Sydney Newman. He created the program. It is, oh. The whole thing is like that, super earnest, super low budget and completely hilarious. And um, I hope to God there isn't a clip of it on YouTube. So in terms of um, 
Doctor Who fans aren't always the most gentle when they review shows and their feelings. How did, how was the reaction with your books and novels as they came out? I was re- I was lucky. Um, they were fairly popular. Back in the day, there was a thing called Usenet. This is before the World Wide Web. And Usenet was a huge collection of news groups on every, like an f- internet forum. Every topic from cooking to Doctor Who, there was one of these groups for it. And in fact, I, I met John on Rec Arts Doctor Who. That was the, or Rec Arts Doctor Who. That was the name of the group. And um, I was sort of, um, I, I sort of got into that at about the same time as the book came out. Uh, and I printed out at my work um, reams of people's comments and reviews and things. And I probably interacted with them way too much, like trying to have discussions or debates with people about what they thought about it. But they were generally very positive. And I was like, oh, my God, I've managed to pull this off, despite the complete bizarre nature of this novel. Um, things were very uh, – it's not the – it's not – like the first year's worth, that must be only about 1991. So I'm not like one of the pioneers of the books, but I think every so often somebody would come along and throw in something that was kind of new, different from what had come before, and I managed to do that. I managed to pull that off. And people were like, wow, you can do that. It's like me reading Time Worm Revelation um, earlier on in the run and just being completely flattened. You can do this in Doctor Who, that, that, that wonderful feeling. I haven't seen this done before. And also it was kind of intense, that book. So um, people people were kind of like, oh, my God. The, the very best praise that I got from somebody were, uh, reported that that made them throw up. Admittedly, they were reading it on a bus, which is inadvisable. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, there was a scene of such profound horror that they had, they had to race for the vomit bag, and I was just like, yes. This is the kind of feedback we're going for. We want to, I want you all in tears and um, rolling about on the floor and pressing my name. That's what I got. So, you know, I, I, I couldn't complain about it. There were some, there were certain complaints. There was somewhere in the press uh, was not too happy about the, uh, the use of LSD in the narrative. Personally, I felt that if you're going to go to a hippie party in the 60s, you're probably going to encounter it. So might as well deal with it. But that was also, that was pretty full on. That hadn't been, uh, you know, stuff like that had not really been done before. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was a tremendously exciting time. First get, actually getting the gig and then um, getting this positive feedback and being able to interact with readers in that very direct way that the internet, even that very, very early internet gave you. The internet was remarkable in those days because there weren't very many people on it. So it had much more of a feeling of community um, than it does now with, you know, billions of people. It's very strange. But it felt like, you know, I've done this book and, like, um, we're all in it together kind of feeling, like my, my whole marketplace, my whole community is all is around me, my friends and people I don't know, people I maybe don't get on with. But, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a good time. It was a good time and it was very encouraging. You had a writing eight novels for The Virgin, and then when the BBC Eighth Doctor Adventures took over from Virgin, I think you continued to write for Bernice with The Virgin range, but then took up with the BBC books. So yep. the, the, with um, Eighth Doctor Adventures with the BBC, you were then writing with your husband, Jonathan Blum. Is it mm-hmm. easy or hard writing with Jonathan? Um, John's so smart. He's so clever. Um, and his knowledge of Doctor Who is terrifying. 
mine mine used to be terrifying but it's become very very feeble probably because i just lean on him for everything now if i forget something in this interview i will just give him a yell and he will remember it and so running with him there's these huge quantity of um of ideas to draw on which can be a little bit overwhelming actually when i was running just by myself i'm very much in control of what i'm doing and it's just me and my ideas and everybody else can run away and do something else thank you you can't do that when you have a co-author you've got to kind of negotiate you've got to work out how all of your stuff fits together the danger is that you'll both have enough good ideas that you're going to start over-egging your pudding. I love using that expression. You'll over-egg your pudding. Like you'll have a scene and you'll think of six different clever lines this character could say, so you put them all in. And suddenly you've got a scene where people are just sitting there talking, that kind of thing. So, and also, you know, every author thinks they are uh, right about everything. And every author thinks that everybody else's stuff is rubbish and that you should be allowed to redraft it. You should be allowed to go through and fix it. And so that's dangerous. But when we wrote our first book together, which was Vampire Science, um, we were so in love. It was absolutely disgusting. And, you know, we had no conflicts in the writing of that book. We were completely on the same page, so to speak. And, um, you know, we, we just sailed through. We probably had to go back and edit a lot because we put in too much stuff or, you know, uh, whatever. But it, that was actually a trap for us, I think, um, because we were so fluffy when we wrote the first book, we didn't necessarily learn some of the methods we were going to need for future books to be able to resolve conflicts, to figure out, well, what is the best way forward for this book? You know, who's, sometimes it's as simple as whose idea should we use? So we sort of hadn't put in the hard yards of working out how to do, how to work together like that. So we had, um, in the later books, we did have a, a bit of trouble I love a very lazy writer, which used to drive John crazy, the poor man. I'd like to just sit down and start typing. I don't do this these days because you can't really. You have to actually do some form of planning or you're just going to type rubbish. It's not going to make any sense. I, I always tell the tale of um, this was in Unnatural History. I just sat down and I just started typing a chapter about a particular, this is my typing hands. Yada, 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 about some character or other. And John just basically leaned over because we were sort of we're sitting side by side at the computers or whatever. He leaned over and said, you realise that character died two chapters ago? I said, what? I said, he said, yeah, and you've read that chapter and you know that, yeah, you basically know that that character's dead. And I thought, how did I get so out of touch with what I'm doing? But it's because I just want to start writing the prose. I don't want to have to do any work. Writing prose for me is very easy. So John, working with John has been very good training to kind of strengthen up that. Well, we're going to have to do a bit of planning. And I, I think that um, I have benefited greatly from it. These days, there's much more careful thought going in before I just start wildly typing. Can you tell us a bit about your other collaborations with um, Ben Aronovich? And you did a bit with Paul Cornell too. Um, did some plotting with him. Is that right? Oh, Paul came to visit um, Sydney and um, so uh, I acted as his native guide a little bit and um, we weren't zooming around on the trains. So, we, you know, and of course, what did we talk about? We talked about Doctor Who and he had human nature on the boil. And so um, we, we discussed that book a lot. I know I, I'm not sure now if and what ideas of mine went into that book. I know he had 
a huge pile of his ideas that didn't go into it. So, you know, again, there's that refining process. You can't put in every idea. They're not all as brilliant as you may think they are or they just don't fit or whatever. Um, but, gee, it was fun. I mean, it was Paul Cornell. Oh, my God. And I was talking to him about his book. It was uh, completely brilliant. Whereas poor old Ben was a slightly different situation where that so vile a sin, the novel was just not coming out and it just wasn't happening. And from the files that I received, something had gone wrong on that computer. Um, but I look back and I wonder, Transit got a mixed reception, although I do think it is one of the most brilliant Doctor Who books in the history of man. The also people got an enormously great brilliant reception, which it completely deserved. So can you imagine the whiplash going from controversial book to greatest book ever? How do you do your third book? I think it would be very um, confronting. I think you'd be second-guessing yourself a lot. I, don't, I haven't really talked this out with Ben, but I can imagine myself in that situation thinking, my God, I don't think I dare put pen to paper. This is um, This is scary as hell. Anyway, the practical upshot all, all was I was so desperate to read that book, uh, So Vile a Sin, that I said I will write it if I have to in order to read it. And I wrote it in an insane I, – I didn't write it. How did I write? I wrote a big chunk. I wrote most of it from his notes. Um, we had most of the book was written out in notes, and we had big chunks of it had been written. And then I, uh, I just sat there and typed without – pausing for breath for six weeks, I think. And I, I remember falling asleep at the keyboard once and I thought I will never write this hard again. I think I wrote 4,000 words and then I, was, I realized that I was starting to nod off and thought, oh, great, you have to stop now. It was an absolutely, uh, but it was my honor. Um, I mean, oh my God, Ben Aronovich, author of Remembrance of the Daleks and so many other brilliant things. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't believe how, privileged really I was to be able to pick up a book that for whatever reason wasn't occurring. Well, no, I think it was Poor Devil. It was published um, late, wasn't it? It was actually published out of its sequence in the novels because it, it really got into a, a, a tangle. So, um, you know, it was my pleasure to finish it. I mucked it up though. It was so funny. Um, uh, Rebecca Levine, the editor, had to Right, you know, we were both working like crazy, and she had to email me and say, I've got your draft of the whole book. Yes. And she said, Could you go back and put in character descriptions? And so I went back and I realized I had not described a single person that I was writing about. I would just say what they're doing and then what they're saying. And then so I had to go back and make up all those. I don't know what they look like. But of course, if the poor reader comes in, they're going to think, Which one of them is which? I don't know what's happening. Does that give you some idea? It was yeah. chaos. chaos. It was absolutely, and again, it's John's fault because I I had a wobble. I thought, I can't do this. I mean, A, Ben Aronovich, and B, six weeks, and C, I think 80,000 words. Or so, that can't have been right. It must have been less than that. But, you know, a lot of words. And John said, no, you have to write it. You have to write it. You have to write it. And I said, yeah, you're right. I do have to write it. So I hope people enjoyed it because, oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, I think so. Well, it's, one of the, it's actually one of the ones I've read because I haven't read all the versions. Not new adventures, mm -hmm. um, but that was that was one of the ones that I have read. <laughs>
So, about 25 years or so ago, Gary Russell had the great idea of starting to be Finnish, and he wanted to get a Doctor Who license, which was denied. And so, next oh. next best step was to do Bernie Summerfield. And so, they did a series of Bernie Summerfield uh, stories, and one of them that they adapted was your story, Walking to Babylon. Did you have any mm. involvement with that at all? Yeah, I was lucky, actually. The, um, the contract that I had with the Beeb said that if they if an audio book of this ever appears, tough luck you're not involved. You don't get to have any say in it at all. You can see how this is sort of um prudent and economical for a publisher. They don't want the authors turning up in the middle of I don't know from audio books. I do I'll know a bit more now. But um you know you don't want the author turning up and saying you've made a change to this, you've done this, you've done that. No, I just want to make my nice audio book. So please sign away your audio rights, okay? And, we'll, you know, we'll give you some money, but please go away and do something else. So Big Finish did not have to involve me. They could have told me to go take a jump. Instead, they brought me in and got me to um, give feedback, make suggestions, and uh, I was uh, I was pleased to be involved. And, um, oh, my God, Liz Sladen. Ah! So, you know, that's, that's pretty great. That's pretty amazing. Um, in some ways, I wish that I had written it myself because uh, I, I feel like maybe I could have, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm just greedy, but I bet I'd love to have seen the Kate Allman audiobook version. But they did a great job, and of course, with my help, of course. Um, so it was quite an experience. That's the one that's got... Um, the dr- it's sort of got Lawrence of Arabia on the cover, and then there's a smiley right. face, which I think is the drone. That was a bit of a surprise. But I'd had many more surprising covers than that from um, the New Adventures, so I wasn't too shocked. Yeah. So, so did Jack Rayner talk to you at all about what she was doing? I did get a bit of a surprise when I learned, because you know how things leak out when they shouldn't. I got a shock when I realised they were actually doing it. But once I was sort of... Like, okay, now I know what's happening. Uh, once I was brought on board, we must have talked to each other. I, I'm, and I must have been, she must have been the person that I was giving some ideas and feedback to. Because um, she scripted it, didn't she? I'm not misremembering how no, she, did, yeah, she, yeah, she did. She did the adaption. She did, yes. Yeah. Okay. So I must have talked to her. And in those days, it probably, probably we were emailing. By that stage, we must have been emailing each other, which would have made life so much simpler. There are, act- I have actual letters from the early days of the new adventures. Wow. Have you actually written any audio cast plays? Because you've got a big finish of a lot of your recordings. Um, I mean, today I was just listening to one of your Bernie Summerfield's, um, what was it, today? Solar Max and the Seven Handed Steak Mother. Um, I had to listen to that today <laughs> um, just to get, you know, oh, wow. get my ear in because I wanted to listen to a few different things. Um, Mostly stories are all stories recorded as narratives. Have you actually written any audio plays with casts? No, it's not. Scripts are not really my area. People online often incredibly kindly say, oh, Kate, Kate Orman should be involved in the doc- new Doctor Who television show, you know, get Kate Orman to write a script for you. And I'm like, I have no idea how to write a television script. I don't know how to write an audio script. It's quite a specific skill set, and it's not one that I actually have. John, on the other hand, might uh, – no, well, we know he does because he did Fearmonger. Okay. So John could definitely do it uh, because he knows from scripts. 
because he studied that stuff. So, but I, I don't know how to do it. So no, I have not. I haven't. Uh, I haven't written a uh, an audio play or any kind of play really, except um terrible, terrible videos for my friends when they were doing their um degrees in video production. But that's a secret. That <laughs> that's not on YouTube. What about some of the Benny stories? Because you've done a lot of stories in her the Benny collections. How do they come about? That was the. Uh, it was quite lovely, really. They just email you and say, "Would you like to write a story for this Benny collection?" And you say, "Yes, I would. Thank you very much." And here is my suggestion for my story. And then they either say, "Thank you, that is a lovely idea for a story." Here is the amount of money we will pay you, and you just go away, do the work, bit of editing, and you're done. Very straightforward and lovely to be able to keep my hand in. Um, by doing that, always happy to have a call from somebody. Uh, you know, I do weddings, parties, anthologies. The other, the alternative to that, if that if that isn't what happens, they write back and say, thank you very much. We really like your idea of a William Hartnell story in which everyone is blind because they are on the planet of the ultraviolet vision insects, but we might not go with it just this time. <laughs> I think I must write that one one of these days. That was bonkers, but for the most for the most part, you know, it was just um very smooth sailing. Okay. But I was very lazy with some of those stories. I think I just sort of hammered them out and didn't give them enough thought. And when I go when I look down sort of the list of the stories, I feel a bit ashamed of some of them, especially because John would write a story in the same anthology and he would work his guts out on it, and it would be great. It'd be a terrific story. And then there's my bit of, you know, not so great story. But as I look my run my eye down the list of the stories, I can see I'm improving because I'm actually starting to try harder. And so I feel good about that, at least. Do you think as a female author, you bring a different dimension to storytelling than men do? I would... Surely I must. But I thought... I thought... I am perhaps accurately described as gender non-conforming. And I don't mean in the sense that... Um, I'm going to get beaten up if I walk down the street. I just mean I'm not a very feminine woman. And, um, you know, some women are more feminine than others and I'm less feminine than others. I often think to myself that I must be bringing these perspectives to Doctor Who, to whatever I'm writing, but I'm not necessarily conscious of them or I'm not necessarily doing it deliberately. I'd actually like to think about stuff like that a bit more deliberately put it on the page a little bit more i wish i could i wish i could rattle off my my standard speech about yeah yes of course as a woman i bring blah 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 but i actually find it very difficult to to um to define or to explain and i hope somebody would do it in the comments or something because uh from the inside i'm finding it very hard to to see it I think, I mean, one of the things I've, I've been struck by a lot of your stories is that you can be very bleak. Um, you know, the, the Betty story today, the, the ending of it was just so bleak and so awful. Um, you, you have a child at the very end commenting, you just have a child appear to give a fraction of hope, but in the destruction of the, everything else. And it sort of went, oh, and then it ended. <laughs> so, so, and I found that with a, with a number of your stories, it just, you sort of go, oh, okay. So. I do like to mess the reader about. I really like to muck up the reader. And this, again, we we may come back to this in discussing the Dead Star. 
um, because it actually I messed up when I did it this time. But there's nothing I love better than to pull the rug out suddenly from under the reader. Oh, my God, they're dead. Um, or, oh, good heavens, something horrible is happening. Or, oh, well, that didn't come out too well in the end, did it? Or all those kinds of feelings. I want to – I really um, – I started doing this in the fanfic. As early as the fanfic, I was doing terrible doctor bashing. Um, there's a, a kind of a genre of fan fiction called hurt slash comfort, where you, your hero is like, oh, no, I have been horribly mangled in some way by the bad guy. Oh, my best friend, won't you nurse me back to health? That kind of thing. Very romantic. Um, but I just do hurt, hurt. And I realized with the fanfic quite early on, uh, talking to somebody, talking to one of the, somebody who edited one of these little fanzines, I wonder if I can remember who it was. I want you to care about what's happening. And if I mangle the doctor, you're going to care because that's how I feel when I'm watching Doctor Who. It's like, oh no, the baddies have got hold of the doctor and they're torturing him. This is terrible, but I can't take my eyes off it. That feeling. So, yes, um, I must reread uh, Solar Max. I have only a fairly, I think there's a bit of LSD going in that as well. <laughs> there, are some her- there are some herbs being burnt that are a bit, yes, a little indeed. Bit that way, <laughs> a bit that way. As the aurora swelled in the solar hurricane, those voices had been interrupted again and again. Electrical power from all over the planet, disrupted by the massive flares. Benny said, There's only so much cosmic magnificence you can take in one go. You need little things, too. Little things, repeated Sarja. Forgotten the next day. His gaze wandered off her, his interest already lost. Human beings are about halfway between the biggest and the smallest things in the universe, said Benny loudly, halfway between the shortest-lived and the longest-lived. Perhaps we would look vast and all-important to an atom. She stopped herself before she slid completely into her lecturing voice. Anyway, we need things on our own scale to keep us sane. She had hoped for a debate, but Sarja wasn't listening. Benny shrugged and took a little metal cup of espresso off the fire. Give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he just didn't know how to talk to someone who didn't have external genitalia. A century ago, every woman on Sarge's homeworld had been killed by a biological weapon developed by the abstergents. Nothing human and female could survive there for more than a few weeks. Twice a year, Sarge's people imported a boatload of women from a desperately poor neighbouring colony for a week's worth of fun and baby-making. They kept the boys. Sarge had been off-world before on botanical surveys, but always accompanied by other men. Benny was the first woman he'd ever had to work alongside. He was at least as uncomfortable as she was. They'd both expected to be part of a large mixed group. Now, here they were, stuck on either side of a campfire, sitting about as far apart as they could get without risking frostbite, and he was making fun of her espresso maker. The coffee was going down sparkling hot. "'Your scars, for instance,' said Benny, determined to get a response. You keep your sleeves rolled up to the elbow, even in this cold. His bare forearms were doodled with the red and white lines of cuts deep and shallow. Compared to the fall of empires or the death of stars, aren't they just as small and insignificant as my coffee? Sarja stood up, fists clenching at the ends of those painted forearms. Benny refused to react, taking another small mouthful. But she kept her eyes on him. 
Um, let's talk. Let's talk about the Dead Star. About two years ago, um, Big Finish released a combination of stuff called Masterful, and one of the surprising releases as part of the collection uh, was their first enhanced audio novel, which I think was called "I Am the Master." Is that- Terror of the Master. Terror of the Master. Terror of the Autons, of course, it was, and that was right. su- such a revelation because it was such an amazing story with enhanced audio, but just one reader. Um, and since then. Big Finish have produced a couple, and the Matthew Waterhouse one was exceptional as well last year. And you've now released a new enhanced audio novel. Um, how were you approached um, about doing this? Uh, so there I was, minding my own business, and I get an email completely out of the blue from Big Finish saying, do you want to do an audio novel? Explaining what that is. And I'm, like, so shocked by this because it's so exciting. But I thought somebody's pranking me. So I, I literally spent about half an hour Googling the names of the people involved and looking on the Big Finish website to double check that I hadn't been had. This is exactly the first same thing I did the very first time I got published in a, a paid magazine back in, I think, about 2000. You know, like I send them off a story and I think, well, I know how it works. It'll get rejected. It'll just have to wait for six months, blah, 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 blah. One week later, I get an offer for like $400 for this story. And I'm like, somebody's pranking me. And I had to go investigate. They weren't. Ah! So similarly, that was my first response was, um, you know, this must be somebody playing a rotten trick on me. But it wasn't. It was this incredibly exciting possibility. And in a format that I'd never, not even sure that I'd heard of before. I'm not an expert on sort of what you would get, uh, you know, audio books and things. I don't know how different kinds of audiobooks are done. I just have, I've only listened to ones where people just talk and that's it. You don't get sound effects or, or stuff like that. So, you know, I was like, anything new and uh, I tend to get very excited about it. So were you given freedom in terms of, were you asked to pitch some ideas? Were you told which doctor they wanted? What, what were you told in terms of writing this? I was asked to do Patrick Tratton's Doctor with Ben and Polly. So they were absolutely upfront about who they, you know, which which doctor and so on they wanted, and I and that make, that gave me a wobble because I thought to myself, oh my god, I can't possibly write for those that set of characters. I can't do it. I don't have the chops. So I sat there, you know, looking at this email, thinking like, oh god, I can't do it. And then I realised that what have I been doing? What have John and I been doing? You know, during our lunch break for the last few months, we've been watching animated Trapton episodes. We, and, in fact, I think we had a Troughton watch where we went through every single Troughton story that we could possibly watch on video. And maybe we were listening to audios in between as well. I'm not sure. But um, I thought, you have now absorbed so much Troughton. Surely you can reproduce this. Also, Ben and Polly. Yes, because I really love them. I thought, I, 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 by God, I can do them justice. So I realised that I, by, I, what I'd done was I'd emailed Big Finish back. And I'd said, oh, um, are there any other doctors available? And then I thought to myself, you are out of your mind. Do the Troughton one. So I emailed them back and said, ignore that. I'd love to. And so they said, um, pitch us a few stories. Pitch us a few different story ideas. You mentioned Ben and Polly. What do you like about those characters? Doctor Who is going through a very weird phase around when Ben and Polly come on board. It's kind of, it's just beginning to find this new identity. And the War Machines is like, I think the War Machines, correct me if I'm wrong, but the War Machines is the first true present day story, if you don't count um, the very beginning. Planet of the Giants. 
Oh, the chances are okay. But they're, so, but, but, they're ti- but they're tiny. But they're tiny. It doesn't really. Yeah. Well, you you get that is actually a really good point that the War Machines is not the first present day story. It's it's the first time they they, they do return to present day and interact with present day because you, you can't count Planet of the Giants of them really interacting. Well, it's a bit the tiny funny interaction with the present. It's the present day, but it's in a sink. Yes. Um, Whereas the War Machines is the first time it's actually yeah. Deliberately trying to be, and even even though the very first episode was present day, it was a school, mm. a car junkyard, whereas the War Machines actually takes mm. you out onto the streets. So that really is the first time Doctor Who reached modern day. It really wants to interact with the modern day. What's hit? What's now? What's now? The kids, pop music, clubs, and um, the, the fact that the Doctor is so natural in that world is hilarious. Um, Polly is so wonderful. She will never be that good again. Ben is lovely. They're these young, fresh characters that are very, very much part of that. That um, you know, it's the setting is suddenly the world in which the people watching the TV show live. Um, you know, and they're looking out the window, and, or they're walking down the street in London, and going, "Look, the post office tower." One of the reasons that I really like Ben and Polly is that they do come after some rather stiff science fiction-y um, companions who aren't really given, often aren't given a third dimension, which is a slightly strange thing to say given talking about animation. But um, but you know what I mean? Just, there are a lot of characters before them that, aren't, that don't have that kind of chance to blossom. And I think it's partly because, again, oh, if we're in the real world, well, we know what a, char- a person in the real world would be like. How you know the the interests they would have, how they would act. They'd be somebody that we might actually meet. Whereas if you're off on Planet X, they could be. They're going to be a little bit stiff, and they're not going to talk with contractions or whatever. So Ben and Polly have this big advantage in that they are kind of hip and swinging and and a little bit more real. But also, I just worship Polly in War Machines. How she's um, kind of navigating just through the real world, and she can do that so well. She's, she handles people so well. She knows people and I have terrible um, social anxiety and Polly's so extroverted. So I'm watching her going like, Oh, please give me some tips. You know, that kind of feeling. You actually, you actually write a lot for Polly and you've given her the skills she had in the war machine. So her secretarial skills, her people skills, and you emphasize them all in what she has to do in terms of her mission for the doctor. Mm. So that's always. I think you would just show your love of the character by doing that. Although I, I've only had a small amount of feedback on this one, but I'm not convinced that I actually managed to pull Polly off. I may have made her, despite my best feminist efforts, I may have made her a little bit too wimpy or a bit too screamy. I had this thing in my mind that whenever I thought there was something that was a bit actiony, I should. The your first thought is give that to Ben. I said, no, always, always make it your first thought, I'll give that to Polly. And if there's something that's a little bit more intellectual, perhaps, give it to Ben. And that way we get to see different sides of those characters than we might, or, you know, if you just went with the, the most obvious thing. Always, again, me with the what is the new thing that I can do? Well, it's this. So, um, gee, I had fun writing for them. I really did. I love how how annoyed Ben is all the time, especially with the Doctor. He doesn't take any nonsense in this this fantastical world he's found himself in. He uh, he really feels what's happening, and it's wonderful. 
Now, the, the first part of the story is kind of set in a bit of a bit of a spoiler here, guys. A bit of a land of fiction. It's not quite the earth. It's a very bizarre making of it. Um, were you thinking in terms of the land of fiction, Celestial Toy Maker? Why did you decide to start in quite a such a bizarre way? I'm. I have a, a terrible addiction, and my terrible addiction is to YouTube physics videos. This started during lockdown. I started listening to PBS FaceTime, and I and you know that was the gateway drug, and so I became completely obsessed with black holes. And now, if there's anybody out there who's listening who actually knows this physics, I can't apologize enough. But a book that I read about black holes explains that close to a black hole, the gravity is so severe that one of the ways that it bends space is that it opens it up a little bit. It stretches it out a little bit. So there's more space per space. And I thought, what if you did that to the surface of the earth? What if you just sort of opened it up and there was this this little extra tiny bit, a little bit like looking under your sheet in the bed and there's this extra little bit. And that's the bit that you're describing is the extra little bit. But where what's it going to fill it up with? Well, it's going to fill it up with what's underneath it. And so that was where the idea for that came from. Um, and, you know, again, I've probably mangled the physics. So, you know, if PBS Space Time is watching, sorry. Oh, please don't tell me you've mangled the physics because can I say, for the first time, I understood how <laughs> scientists found planets through gravity. Because I know that you know, often they, you know, one of the things I, I knew was that they went looking for planets because of gravity. And I could never understand how that worked. And the way you explained it in your story, I went, oh, oh that yes. makes sense. So This actually, is the great, sorry, go on. Yeah, it was just Doctor Who doing its remit of actually teaching science. Because as, as you explained <laughs> what, what was happening to the planets moving faster, moving slower, and therefore a body in gravity actually, I went, Oh, that's what they found. That's how they found other planets. So, yeah, there was yep. big revelations in terms of, as I've explained, I went, oh, I've learned something. Well, this is one of the great pleasures of science and science fiction. Um, you know, there's no God-given rule that you have to get all of the science right. And I've, as I say, I've probably mangled a lot of the black hole physics because it's very, very difficult. It's the mathematics is quite challenging. Quite challenging, she says. I would have to go back to university for a minimum of four years to begin to discuss it properly, and I'm not going to. Um, but you know that Newtonian stuff with the planets going past each other—that's not too hard to understand. The the point is, the great pleasure is understanding stuff. The great pleasure is the moment where you even you're reading Wikipedia and you go. That's how they found Neptune or something like that, you know, and then you want to explain it to somebody else and it's your poor husband and he's trying to work and you run in and you go, I've got to tell you about how they found Uranus. And then he's just looking at you like, please leave. Um, the poor man takes such an ear bashing from me whenever I get too excited about any subject and he's had to endure a lot of physics. Um, but, you know, and the, but the novel benefited, I feel, um, from two in two ways the novel benefited um one was i was able to indulge myself in explaining lots and lots of science um and so to try and give it that really good sciencey like look this is this is real take this seriously this could really happen kind of feeling when i'm doing crazy stuff that couldn't really happen but the other thing is the crazy stuff all of the i mean you don't have to look very far into the subject of black holes before you start encountering 
mad, wild, weird ideas. And you think, oh, I've got to use that in a story. That's so bonkers. That's just not how the world normally works. Please let me use it. It's it's great. And plus, you can listen to YouTube physics videos while you're cooking dinner. So what a time saver. Now, the, the fact that it's such, some of the ideas are pretty bonkers worked perfectly with Patrick Troughton and wouldn't work with very right. many other doctors. So it was fortunate that you stuck with Patrick because the second doctor <laughs> took on the bonkers really well. Yeah, there is a lot of extreme bonkers in the Troughton era. And so it just slots right in there really neatly. And so, but I bet you could do it with any doctor. You just have to have a good think about how to do it first. But you just have, but you could do it. Give me the, you know, email me and I'll do it. Because it's 60s too, though, because it's, it's Avengers as well, isn't it? It was very much, you know, the Avengers time as well. That had that feel happening at the same time. Oh, Absolutely. We're putting in lots and lots of great science, but mixing it up with 60s spy-fi, which is a very interesting mashup. I hadn't heard spy-fi before. That's incredible. How could I not have heard spy-fi? We love the Avengers and we'll watch it given the slightest excuse, but we watch the, we mostly watch the black and white stuff. Love, love Honor Blackman. And um, but and also especially that first black and white season of Emma Peel, more than the later colour ones. I mean they're fun, but that first black and white season is absolutely nuts. And so you 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 see this sort of curve of madness in the Avengers, where it starts off quite normal science, well, spy-fi, but it gets more and more and more and more bonkers the longer it goes on. And then all the shows around it are sort of echoing that insanity or, or fitting into it. So, you know, you can see the, the prisoner is part of this big balloon of crazy shows. Because um, I assume the reason is that everyone is on drugs, but it may just be that they're reading a lot of Lewis Carroll. I, I can't really say. But yeah, I oh know Avengers definitely. I mean, it's it's absolutely deliberate and obvious. That's why there's lots of expensive cars in the in Dead Star is the Avengers. Yeah, and chauffeur driven stuff. Now, have you had a, you've had a chance to listen to it? Have you the whole? Have you listened to your production? I haven't because the post office has lost it, and I think they found it again. And I'm going to go and pick it up tomorrow so I can finally hear it for myself. I, I yes, isn't that isn't that crazy? Of all the things to lose. <laughs> well, I guess I can't ask you in terms of what you thought about Michael Troughton's performance or anything then because you've not heard it. I've only heard that tiny extract of it, which was, you know, I was riveted listening to the tiny extracts, but I can't wait to hear the whole thing. I mean, what an, what an honour. Wow. I believe you had David Troughton read one of your stories. Yes, The Five-Dimensional Man, which was also a Troughton story. Uh, this is a few years ago now. And that was that was just magic to listen to. And again, you know, what an, what an honour, what an extraordinary experience to switch it on and hear this actor that you know, you're, you're sitting there thinking Peladon and stuff, <laughs> Midnight, and it's coming out. Um, and, you know, and similarly with Michael Troughton, it's just like I, I can't quite get over it. This, it's quite amazing when you suddenly have a connection with the actual series like that we had michael trout on the show a couple of weeks ago and um, oh that's right yeah Dwayne actually picked michael trout as being the perfect patrick trout voice a couple of years ago um yeah. and so yeah we're pretty pleased to hear michael doing a whole series of things and then yeah, he does a, a marvelous reading of the story i tried to oh, take credit but you. nick briggs shut me down <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, Big Finish was listening to our podcast and they heard Dwayne's recommendation yeah. that it had to be Michael that does the recast. And uh-huh. yep, they just uh-huh. followed Dwayne's advice and did it. Trendsetters. That's for sure. Well, anyhow, you're going to enjoy the production when you hear it. The sound design and music by Steve Foxton is just fantastic. Michael Troughton is just amazing. He does the most stunning Patrick Troughton voice. But there's a lot of women that you've actually got in this story, and he manages to get the different timbers of different women's voices really oh, he well does. as well. He does. He does. Yeah. So you're, you're going to love it when you hear it. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Oh, no, this is going to – this will be a treat. There is one character at the uh, at the start of the story that uh, the team um, enacts with quite a lot throughout the whole story. And I remember thinking right at the start of the story, there's something not quite – something doesn't quite make sense with the voice in this particular character. And then things switched up at the end of the book um, and it suddenly made sense why that voice was different. And he got that character perfectly because it had me thinking something's not quite right. And then the revelation yeah. came. I think you might, you know what I'm talking about. Um, oh, I know just what you're talking about. And that's brilliant. Yeah. That's extremely clever. And I look forward to hearing that. Yeah. That'll be great. Oh, I guess the question we all want the answer to is when is, is your next book coming out, Kate? ASAP. I can't, I, there's nothing I can say out loud right now, but I would love to do another one of these. I had so much fun. And if I do another one, there will be more YouTube science to play with and I will have such a good time and I will make the readers suffer or rather the characters suffer. I hope I don't make the readers suffer too much, but who can say? Their characters will have a terrible time, but you, reader, will love it. And we're <laughs> hoping um, for people in Sydney, I think you should be aware by now that Janet, we've got Janet Fielding coming out soon. Um, hopefully we'll um, be able to see Kate and John um, with Janet. So that hopefully. That so wonderful. We're, <laughs> hoping to, we're hoping to catch you on that day. Listen, Kate, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. All right, Thank you, guys. It's been brilliant. Zoe, said Betty, who is the doctor? Well, uh, I don't know exactly. Zoe's young face took on a distant look. He's very old, I think, and very clever and very kind. He can travel absolutely anywhere in the five dimensions. Is that where he comes from, said Betty? A fifth dimension? Zoe's eyes widened, staring behind Betty, who felt the little hairs on the back of her neck stand up. A moment later, her permanent wave was starting to stir as though there was a draught coming from somewhere. She turned to where Zoe was looking. The curtains flew, the air screamed and split open. Betty clapped her hands to her ears, staring at the shape appearing beside the television. Piro shrieked, Shiver me timbers! It's the TARDIS, cried Zoe delightedly. The doctor's found me after all. The time machine was a solid, squared-off ultramarine capsule, almost as tall as the living room ceiling. A man stepped out and broke into a pleased smile. Zoe! The girl jumped up. Oh, doctor, I didn't know if you'd be able to find me. Luckily, the TARDIS was able to home in on the crystal. This was Zoe's five-dimensional man. Not an egg-headed genius in a surgeon's white gown, not a square-jawed superman with a flying helmet and goggles, but a little fellow in an unironed suit. Where's Jamie? Zoe was saying worriedly. I'm afraid Professor Sterling has taken him hostage. 
He wants the Trotanic crystal in exchange for Jamie. What are we going to do? We're going to give it to him, of course. The doctor seemed to notice Betty for the first time. We can get back by reversing the journey, but we've got to hurry. You'd better say goodbye to your friend. Betty, said Zoe. No, said Betty. They both stopped and looked at her. You can't leave me behind after all this. She could be our secret weapon, said Zoe quickly. The robots haven't had a chance to scan her yet, so she's not in their memory store. They should look right through her, as though she isn't even there. Uh, now, Miss uh, uh, Miss um, uh, uh, Betty, said the shabby little man, fixing her with his grey gaze, you're asking us to put you in mortal danger. Sterling is a cold-blooded murderer. Now, I hope you'll forgive me for saying this, but you don't look as though you belong in a war zone. I'm pretty harmless, she admitted. I can't even kill spiders in the bathtub. I mean, I try to put them outside before Mark gets home. <laughs> she laughed. But look at you, Doctor. You're not exactly General MacArthur, are you? She met his eyes. Let me help you save your friend. Please. Please, I, I've just got to see. Oh, can't we take her with us, Doctor? Oh, very well, he said gruffly. Betty, I'm going to give you one thing to do. It shouldn't take you more than a few moments. You can have a very quick look at the future, and then you must go straight back to the TARDIS where you'll be safe. Betty's heart leapt. She couldn't say a word. She only beamed. Come along, then. Well, how was that, Philip? That was fantastic. Great talking to Kate. Some interesting stories there, and um, yeah, lots of fun. Awesome. All right, that leaves us only to give a recommendation of something that we have been listening to. Whose turn is it, Philip? Was it yours or mine? It's probably yours, isn't it? Let me just check. No, it's your no, turn. It's mine. Okay. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recommend something that I mentioned um, just then talking to Kate, uh, and that's a Bernie Summerfield treasury. So it's a series of short stories. They're all about 45 minutes to an hour long. Um, but just the most amazing. So there's one by Ben Aronovich, one by Robert Sheerman, one by Paul Cornell, Kate Orman, Kate Orman, another by Ben Aronovich, Stephen Moffat, Andrew Cartmill, and Terence Dix. So it is a treasury of the most amazing authors, all writing short stories for Bernice. And they're all read by um, Bernice herself, Lisa Bauman. And yeah, very, very diverse stories, very different in tone. Um, Kate's we mentioned briefly is pretty bleak um, but there's comedies in there there's some black comedies in there um, but, they, but they've all captured Bernice and have stories to tell about her often in her earlier days but really worth a listen so if you love any of those authors which let's face it who wouldn't love most of those authors really worth getting hold of what about you Dwayne what have you been listening to I have been digging into some of the target novelizations, some of the audiobooks, because I've sort of got a bit of a taste for devouring some of the classic Doctor Who stories in a different way. And uh, we've got a, a chat with someone closely involved with the uh, Target audiobooks coming up very soon on the show, so stick around for that. Not this episode, but coming up in the next month or so. And uh, it sort of, sort of piqued my interest in digging back into my collection. So I stuck on Megalos, written by Terence Dix, but performed by John Colshaw and John Leeson. So, of course, very interesting, John Colshaw being a, a fourth doctor, or being 
known as a false doctor impersonator uh, and doing so many, so much voice work now for Big Finish. He's a bit of a bit of a legendary name. Uh, so it's always exciting to to hear what kind of spin John Coltrane is going to put on that. And it's also got John Leeson doing the voice of K9 because obviously K9 has a pivotal role in Megloss in the in the first couple of episodes or the first episode at the very least. So yeah, I I just like devouring these stories in a in a slightly different way. Have you heard Megloss? Yes, I have listened to Megloss. I did listen to it at a fast speed. Did you? <laughs> but, uh, I did. I did listen to it. What's your What's your speed of choice? Do you go to one point five or two? Yeah, uh, one point five. You don't push it to one point seven five. Uh, okay, if I'm going to be one point seven five or two, I need to be doing nothing else and only focused purely on what's happening, just to get make sure I can pay attention. I mean, they've done studies to show our brains can actually take in. Um, it's something like seven hundred words a minute, and we tend to speak at about two hundred. A bit right. less than that. So yeah, our, our brain is capable of taking in far more words than we can actually physically speak. So yeah, you could go double speed and wouldn't be a problem. But I do want to appreciate the story as well and not lose track. But stop making fun of me for speeding things up. I'm I'm telling on you. I'm telling Nick Briggs. I don't speed. He always up, rips into me about it. I don't speed up big finished stuff because <laughs> it's too much sound effects. But novels and podcasts, even our own podcast, I go fast on. All right. That's it for today. Uh, next week, uh, if all goes to plan, we are going to be doing a special tribute to the late, great Stephen Greif. We have uh, got tributes from a number of people he worked with over the years uh, in Big Finish and Blake 7. So uh, that should be... Uh, make sure you do tune back for that. Not only that, we've got some archive material that has never before been seen uh, of Stephen Greif when he was uh, chatting with us. So it'd be great to share that too, finally. Yeah, it will be. It's been a real joy putting that together. All right. Until then, thank you very much for your company, Philip. And thank you for yours, Dwayne. It's my pleasure. We'll catch you all next time. Bye, everyone. This has been the Sirens of Audio, episode 142, the return of Kate Orman, with our special guest, Kate Orman, and your hosts, Philip Edney and Dwayne Bunny. Original theme music composed by Joe Kramer. Our website is sirensofaudio.com. You can get in touch via our email, which is sirensofaudio at gmail.com, or via any one of our socials. Thanks for listening, audiophiles. We'll hear you next time. My question is, why do you have CDs? This is not being released as a CD release. Well, do you know, I was saying to you before, that I'm still trying to get everything organised here that got sort of either half finished or just went all higgledy-piggledy due to COVID. And um, I simply didn't occur to me to email them to say, Oi, can I have a downloadable copy? And, you know, that's a really obvious thing to do. I think I kept thinking that and then I kept thinking, oh, they must be going to send me physical CDs or something. Gee, if I pick up that package tomorrow and it's cat toys, I'm going to be really irritated. <laughs> um, it could be. It could it, be the cat toys that have gone missing. I am right, aren't I, Philip? The I, audio I, novels aren't, don't get a physical release. I didn't know that. I was going, oh, oh. I didn't know. So that's why I'm checking up on you. So so it must be oh like someone's just, someone's just ripped you a few CDs unofficially. Well, it, well... If it is, well, this is the thing is I was assuming that that must be the, the 
you must come and pick up this package or we're going to send it back to sender message. I thought, of course, that explains it. Oh, but if, it's, it, yeah. if it is... Download only. That's what I thought. Oh, my God, I'm such a fool. All right, I shall email them in the next five bloody minutes to say, hey, I want to start listening to this straight away. I can't wait. <laughs> Gee, I wonder if... It's probably, I wonder if, if you've, have you got a big finish account? Because it's probably in your account already. Oh, my God. 